This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is one that anybody who is a craft beer fanatic, fellow brewer, home brewer, whatnot, anyone who has drunk a craft beer in the last 20 years surely knows. Uh, Greg Cook of Stone Brewing. That makes me feel very important right now, that intro. You know, I, I could have... I'm going to play this for my mom. Okay, okay. I could have, I could have written a much <laughs> longer and more flowery intro than that. I don't think that would have and, been called for. No, no, that's great. Um, but that's a Thank credit... You. That's Thank a, you, though. Very that's, kind. that's a credit to your ability to get out there as an ambassador of craft beer. And, uh, you know, that is one thing that you've been known for throughout your, your career of launching Stone and uh, shepherding it through this kind of amazing growth phase is building a story for, for people... Uh, to connect to, um, how tell me how that that plan for building this business came around, or was it simply just an organic development, um, you know, and a natural extension of, of who you are? Well, uh, and, and me and Steve Wagner, yeah. my partner who I started Stone with, and who's still with us, a president today. Um, it's it's definitely an extension of us. Uh, the, the beer styles are definitely extensions of our own personal tastes as well as the team. Um, you know, you never want to surround yourself with uh, sort of yes men, if you will. But on the other hand, we have managed to surround ourselves with uh, uh, brewers who are like-minded when they're thinking about flavor profiles. Yeah. We have a, a range of perspectives, certainly, and, um, you know, take the benefit of that. But, uh, yeah, so the story... As I think you were trying to ask, uh, came from, well, I've actually learned how to say it in four words. Beer Geek Gone Pro. And it's a common story across the industry. It, it is. For you, that scale is a little different than it is for most other brewers. And that, that Beer Geek Gone Pro is now a large brewery with 320 some odd thousand barrels of production last year and new breweries and everywhere from Berlin to China to uh, here in Richmond, Virginia, where we're talking right now. Um, um, let me uh, pop in for clarity. We don't have a brewery in China. Oh, okay. Just a tap room. Uh, tap room kitchen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and so that story of growth has, has been a little different for you than it has been for, for some others of, of those brewers uh, turned pro. Sure. Um, you know, so one thing we've done over the years is we've pushed really hard. You know, we've really leaned our shoulders into our passion and uh, and have been admittedly aggressive at times um, in a variety of ways, certainly with the flavor profiles of our beers, uh, especially, you know, earlier on from the perspective of what was in the marketplace. But we felt this was us and it's what we wanted to do. It's a voice that we wanted to have. Um, you know, it really has been organic over the years. If you anybody would have told me that uh, we'd be an international company, I I wouldn't have seen it. I really wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, uh, I can remember. Heck, Steve and I got. Uh, I'm now recalling. We got a business coach kind of person to come in and talk with the two of us. Maybe a year and a half, two years into it, when there was a lot of tension. Yeah. Uh, between the two of us, you know, we were having one of the tougher moments, like, mm -hmm. you know, because things were intense. It was difficult. The survival was in question. Yeah. And we were on edge and we were working crazy hours. And you know, I was doing six and a half days a week, 14 hours a day. Uh, that will wear on you. Yeah. So anyways, in this business coach, I remember he he had us write down our personal goals for the brewery and i can remember this one this is one of them uh and that was we wanted to be the brewery that people would ask their friend or colleague or family member who was visiting southern california to bring back home for them that's what we wanted to achieve a reputation that was outside of southern california 
but we didn't expect our beer to be available outside of Southern California. Yeah. And that's why we had that, who would, you know, right, and they, right. you, so we were hoping that if, hey, somebody was visiting from, you know, any other state or region, that they would say, oh, Southern California, that's where Stone is. Could you bring me back some? Yeah. It's a funny one. I was just listening on the drive down here from Washington, D.C. this morning to the uh, Kim Jordan of New Belgium uh, mm-hmm. NPR interview on how we built this. And she mentioned a, a similar anecdote. They loved the fact that a brew, uh, liquor store in Telluride, Colorado, had a sign up in the liquor store that said, if you bring us back 10 cases of fat tire, you know, we'll pay for your gas you know, to make that drive. And they're, in the early days of craft beer, I mean, I think for craft beer consumers today, you take for granted just how accessible beer is. Um, you know, when you guys got started, I mean, it, it was hard to even get some of this stuff. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, the kids, you kids these days. <laughs> and by that, I mean, anybody who's turned 21. Me, me kids. I started drinking when I turned 21 in 1995. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, well, I was going to say anybody who's turned 21 within, um, say, the last, uh, you know, 18 years. Let's right, say two, right. since 2000. Um, but especially since 2004. Yeah. 14 years. Um, have never known anything other than this cornucopia of right, choice, right. which is really amazing. Now, it's you, having turned 21 in 1995, and perhaps, dare I say, maybe you had a beer before that? Oh, uh, I yeah. can neither confirm nor deny. Yeah, well, I can confirm <laughs> I was drinking beer before I was 21. Um, but it wasn't any beer that I would be proud of right, or seek right. after today. No, in college, I, I uh, went to college in Memphis, Tennessee. And due to the crazy beer laws in Tennessee, yeah. uh, I actually had to drive across the Mississippi River to West Memphis, Arkansas, to hit a small Walgreens liquor store just to get import beer or craft beer or anything. Because if it wasn't it's stamped with the state of Tennessee on the cap, then uh, they couldn't sell it in the state. And so, right. you know, those were the challenges that we used to have to face just, just to get a hold of that craft yeah, you beer. You can count down a myriad of challenges. Yeah. And so, yeah, hey, I'll go back to you kids these days. <laughs> you don't know how good you have it. <laughs> really? Because we've known, you know, you and I and, and a lot of other folks, the older folks, will remember the dark times. Sure. And we didn't even know they were the dark times. You know, times. I, you know we, I think you can call them dark times, but I, I look at it in the same way that uh, indie music flourished in the 80s and 90s, you know, and uh, I, I went, I was in the, the punk and reggae and hardcore scene in the 80s and 90s, and uh, at that point, you, it, you had to seek things out, and there was more work to find this, but it also felt more valuable when you did find it, and so... There now, it's an interesting world where you live in, where you can walk into any any liquor store. I remember the first time I walked into Liquor Mart in Boulder, Colorado, coming oh, out yeah. of Tennessee. That and, place uh, is incredible. Into, uh, it's been incredible yeah. for so many years. So '96, I go into Liquor Mart, and like, I, I mean, it, it was just like a kid in a candy store. You know, my eyes lit up. I couldn't believe that this, you know, this supply of beer existed in one place all at one time. Um, and now, in many places across the country, that, I mean, that's just the the standard lineup. So let me give you a little perspective, because I'm off to Berlin tomorrow to celebrate our um, second anniversary there. And in Berlin, a city of four million people, I can name a half dozen places where you would have what we would consider to be a halfway meaningful beer selection. Interesting. And that would be kind of halfway meaningful yeah. beer selection. There would be zero places that we would consider to be a fully meaning. No, I'm going to take that back because there's Buterai and there's you know there's a handful of. I mean, the, those are the really right. there's right. like three. I'll get you know, three places in a city of four million people. So now I'm going to go back to the you kids in the United States don't know how good you have it. In comparison to so many parts of the world, even, you know, hey, developed, you know, beer wise, because nobody wants to argue that Germany isn't developed beer wise, but we are so far beyond. That, That raises an interesting question. One of the interesting things about your business with Stone is that, uh, it is a you are a brewery you are a hospitality business with a with restaurants and tap rooms that are that are public facing and you're also a distribution business you know when it comes to craft beer in southern california um you're one of the larger craft beer distributors um and so 
How did that idea come about? I mean, obviously you're facing some commercial challenges. I mean, the easiest way to get it, well, I shouldn't say it's the easiest way, but one of the most direct ways of getting your beer out there to consumers is to just tackle the distribution yourself. Um, how did you end up in that distribution business? Well, the as far as tackling it ourselves, we had no choice. Yeah, uh, there was no wholesaler that was interested in carrying our beer when we started in 1996, halfway through that right. year. That's approximately the time when the first bubble burst. Yeah, you know, just after we started, and so it was an age when retailers were discontinuing brands, wholesalers were discontinuing breweries, and uh, it was pretty rough out there for a while and that's when we were born so we didn't know a time when anybody was saying hey can we distribute your beer (laughs) sure nobody lined up and said hey i've got a growler would it be okay could i could i you know be one of your first customers nobody cared it was you know hey craft beer was not a thing yet yeah so because we had no other choice uh, we started off with a um Ford Aerostar panel minivan. And we got a, a logo, a vinyl logo uh, cut out, put on the side of it, and we started delivering our own beer. But it nearly killed us. Really? Because, if you know, along with craft beer not being a thing, didn't only mean that no wholesaler was interested, but very few retailers were interested. Yeah. And really, not many consumers were interested. <laughs> So the retail accounts that we could get, they were interested in maybe buying a case, two cases. I remember us trying to put a three-case minimum on our deliveries uh, so we wouldn't suck wind so bad and, and lose money with each delivery and having so few retailers that were even willing to do that. And so about, um, so it was, I remember specifically, it was fall of 1997. We'd started again, uh, delivered our first keg in end of July 1996. So a little more than a year. And we were at that point losing $20,000, $30,000 a month. And most of those losses were coming from the delivery side. Really? Because with every case of beer we would deliver, we would lose money. Every keg, we would lose money because we were so inefficient. There were no volumes. Yeah, yeah. And so we started, at that point, I'd become very proud of our connectivity with our retailers and our ability to understand and steward the quality of our beer in the distribution process. Because at that time, all the major brand wholesalers, all the wholesalers, had untemperature controlled trucks yeah yeah uh so in san diego we can get a little warm during the summer a little bit yeah <laughs> uh so you know uh but but we were again we were bleeding we were bleeding dry uh we, it was completely unsustainable so i started talking to all the wholesalers and uh, one by one by one they all said no thanks no thanks yeah no thank you and one wholesaler, uh, at the time it was the Miller wholesaler. The, the wholesaler doesn't even exist anymore in San Diego yeah. through consolidation and changes. But uh, they said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll take your brand. This was in um, November of 1997. They said, we'll start with you in uh, December. Uh, that was the beginning of November. And then halfway through November, couple of weeks later, they said, you know what? Uh, actually, December, too busy. It's uh, <laughs> holidays, Christmas time. Yeah, Our yeah. salespeople are focused on incentives and, you know, just driving the volume that we right, drive at that right. time of the year. We'll start with you in January. You know, we're dying here. Okay, so halfway through December, we got a call and they said, you know what? Actually, the Super Bowl will be in town in San Diego. And that was true at the very end of January in 1998, um, our team will be really focused on that because it's a big deal when the Super right. Bowl comes in town. All these placements, they got to tack up the, the uh, you know, pennant-style banners, you know, the flag banners, uh, you know, tack them up, and then 
20 minutes later, the other van for the other major wholesaler, you know, the major brand comes through and they rip down that one from the bar and they tack up theirs. And then, you know, another hour right. later, the other team comes back. We literally, I would, I, I watched it happen. The bar owners were just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but anyways, that's so I'm getting sidetracked. Yeah. Um, so uh, it sounds said, like you didn't have a great time working with this Miller distributor. Well, then. we weren't working with them yet. Yeah. And they said, uh, we'll start with you in February. And then, almost like clockwork, about halfway through January, they said, you know what? Actually, a lot of our sales team is taking off time in February because January is so intense for us because of the Super Bowl. Um, It's not going to be a good time. You won't get the attention of the focus. Uh, We should start with you in March. Okay, now we're really dying here. And, um, again, almost like clockwork, in the middle of February, got a call, but this time it was a little different. Uh, I, picked, I can remember, I can, I can literally remember sitting at my desk, picking up the phone, and sure enough, it was this person or contact on the other line, and uh, he says, in, in essence, you know what, um, we've changed our mind. And at that moment when he said that, what I heard was, you know what? We're going to let your company die. And I, uh, I, I still get a lump in my throat when I, when I tell this story. I actually told this um, at the California Craft Brewers Conference last week on stage and um, during a talk I was giving in, and I literally started welling up and my voice got quivery and I was kind of starting to cry a bit. It's that visceral. I mean, it is that powerful just to take myself back. I mean, right now my, you know, arms, my ears sticking up and on my arms and it was, it was the scariest. I mean, it was like the moment in my entire career that was the single worst moment. Pick a one. I walked over to Steve's office and he just looked up at me, and his eyes got wide because he could see it. And I told him about the phone call. And we were just like, oh, shit, what are we going to do? And we didn't think that we, we just didn't see a way out of it because we were, again, bleeding money so much. Well, as it turns out, um, March came. And March, well, the clouds parted, and the sun shone and the angels maybe even sang a little bit and we had our our first break-even month we had volumes a volume growth we just didn't anticipate hmm. um i mean it, by today's standards right, you know, not right. so impressive but it, it got us i think we maybe even made a couple hundred bucks that that month and uh and then we would you know go above and below the break-even line over successive months and over the following year you know but but you could see the light at the end of the yeah. tunnel and uh, yeah, so fast forward. I guess we made it. <laughs> so so now, uh, well, I'll fast forward from there a couple of years into it. Okay, so now we're established as um, uh, a craft brewery that is self-distributing in San Diego County. Right. And we've gotten fairly good at it. We have a couple of refrigerator trucks now, and I think okay, we're a craft beer wholesaler for realsies now. Well, if we're going to be a craft beer wholesaler for realsies, perhaps we should other have other craft brands. And we have gotten to know and really like and respect a lot of different craft brewers, some of which are either doing it themselves and no doubt, you know, having a really tough time making it sure, profitable, sure. not losing money. Um, some are not available in our region that we think craft beer fans like us would love. And so we started put, putting together a portfolio. You'd built relationships with those like-minded retailers that, that were interested in your product and, you know, the beer yeah. that you made and places where they, they could also, you know, convince consumers to take some risks on some of these things. Um, you know, but craft beer consumers were, are always an inquisitive bunch and they want to try, you know. Yes, a, a if you have range. enough, right? Yeah. But we didn't have enough. Right. We had, I right. mean, they, absolutely. The ones that were there in San Diego at this time, we're talking now uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, absolutely inquisitive and passionate, yeah. Yeah. but volumetrically, right. not too many of them. 
But we would. So um, it does make sense then to you know talk to some friends and talk to some folks that you're interested in working with potentially, and kind of slot them into that channel because you're right, it's more efficient if you can sell you know twenty or thirty or fifty cases off of that stop instead of. Oh yeah, we weren't. We were maybe <laughs> at the twenty. You know that would would have yeah. been a really good day. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can remember that we. We're really trying to make our minimum delivery days, minimum of 25 cases wow. delivered wow. for the entire day. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we felt that if we drove you know, uh, a wedge into the beer market, not just by ourselves, but with the help of our friends and compatriots in other breweries, that we could probably do a better job. We could reach more people. And so sure enough, we, you know, at... You know, a, a typical liquor store, they might have um, a couple six-packs of craft, and we'd talk them into, you know, maybe making it three six-packs. And then we'd stretch out to maybe a shelf. And then we'd stretch out to maybe two shelves. And then a half a door. And then a full door. And then two doors. And that took probably that, that progression that I just, you know, stated was probably a two-year, serious, at least yeah. a two-year process. Step by step by step, because if you gave them too much at once and they're consumer based and supported, you'd have old beer right. sitting there right. and the uh, retailer would lose faith in it and you'd retrench and you couldn't afford to retrench because right. there wouldn't have been a second chance. So you had to methodically do it step by step. And yeah, um, so now we are the largest independent craft beer wholesaler, I believe, in the United States. I, yeah, I think you're right on that. Um, you know, what I've found interesting uh, in today's craft beer world over the last few years, a number of small craft brewers, you know, in the, in the, in the world of distribution, you know, as you've seen, like there has been increasing consolidation, um, you know, out there in, the, in that world of packaged beer yeah. and, and uh, you know, uh, draft distribution. Um, some, some very large players have been gathering up all of the smaller family-owned distributors. And uh, um, it's there are so many fewer channels for selling beer out there now than there used to be. Um, but it also, you know, that, that a new generation of brewers has kind of taken some inspiration from what really is your lead in that world and saying, hey, we're not going to depend on other people to distribute us. We're just going to go and do this ourselves and get it out there. Um, you know, and so in my state of Colorado, you've got Crooked Stave uh, Beer Project uh, with their Artisans Distributorship. Uh, True Brewing has also launched their own distributorship. Up in Boston, you have Night Shift that has launched their distribution arm. Um, and so a whole new generation of, of smaller and independent breweries are, are, are kind of using that playbook to say, we know we can't depend on you know these big you know, corporate you know, macro beer oriented guys to get our beer out there, but at the same time, it's not efficient enough for us to just distribute our product out there. Right. And so, to make that cost effective, you know, let's let's all you know cooperatively do this together. Um, but that really kind of started with you guys. Well, uh, actually, it started with uh, Brooklyn. You know, they were doing their uh, right, distribution right. Uh, division. Um, the uh, Craft Brewers Guild, as I think they yeah. called it, and and uh, that they later sold that. Right. Um, uh, and that was, you know, we looked at them and we looked how they were doing that and said, hmm, maybe maybe we could do that. Yeah. So we were not the first, um, but we eventually, you know, continued in the game. We decided that it was something that was very important for us yeah. to um, keep and grow. How much of your business today is that on a percentage basis? Um. Well, I, I can tell you that it's a significant part okay. of the business. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. We have 140 trucks 140. a day, almost. Okay. No, it's 120. Okay. It's 120 plus. Um, I don't want to overstate it. But, uh, trucks a day. Now, these are box trucks, refrigerated right, right. box trucks. I believe that we may have the largest refrigerated beer delivery fleet in the United States, which means that we probably have the largest beer refrigerated uh, refrigerated beer uh, fleet in the world because the United States would you know right, we, we right. the way we treat beers you know I wish the rest of the world treated beer as well as we've learned how to yeah right um, which is kind of mind-boggling yeah we've grown to that position but maybe in a way it's sad because we certainly don't have the largest beer delivery fleet right but Lots of beer delivery still in the United States are not 
uh, temperature controlled. You know, that, that brings up a good point. That's certainly one that I think about. You know, if you get out there in the world of, of beer retail, um, there is a dangerously large amount of craft beer that is, you know, sitting out at room temperature in, uh, in a retail environment, or even worse, sitting out on the back of a, a distributor's warehouse in a unrefrigerated dock, uh, you know, for a day or two, uh, and who knows what kind of, uh, you know, condition. Uh, I don't want to dis um, room temperature. We, we design our uh, beers to be able to withstand room temperature okay. storage. Sure. We want it to be minimized. Right. Uh, and refrigeration is preferable, but it can yeah. withstand it. Uh, so sometimes there are retailers, that's simply just how they sell beer. There's even a couple of states where you still can't sell that's cold true. beer, I think. That's true. I think, what, Utah is like that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, you can buy it, but right. you, and no, you can't drink it yet. <laughs> I'm how, not sure what's gained how by do, that. How do you design beer for that kind of shelf stability? Because, I mean, that that's a specific challenge to, to make sure that that beer – um, given those ingredients and th- considering those recipes, how that that can withstand that time and present the experience that you intend for it for a consumer after it's been you know held at those kinds of temperatures. Right. So I, I perhaps um, with my phrasing may have inadvertently suggested that we did something specifically for the warm shelf. Yeah. When in fact it's simply making sure that you're packaging your beer with low airs. Right. You know, with great sanitization yeah, um, and just great overall practices throughout the brewing process, so you right. end up with a really great quality in your canned, bottled, and kegged beer uh, that can then withstand, you know, the, the challenges, the real-world challenges that are thrown at it. Right. Um, you know, I just got uh, a local brewery here in Richmond uh, it gave our team – um, some beers to say thank you for. We'd done some some nice you know nod, right? Um, and uh, so team gave me one, la- and I took it back to my little Airbnb last night, and uh, at the end of the evening decided to pop it open, and it was oxidized, and it was I think new. I so you know that was a little challenging, and it's a brewery yeah. that uh, I would not dare name their name, course, and that's not, not the point. But it's a brewery that I have respect for and has a good reputation around yeah. town. And I drain poured it. I drank a little bit and it was very good. I think it was a great beer, except for the fact that it had been oxidized. So, you know, that's a bummer. It's, it's uh, not an uncommon experience for no, me. You know, in, yeah. in my role with Craft Beer Brewing Magazine, we receive quite a bit of beer submitted by, by breweries across the country. Um, the rise of kind of hazy and more delicate hops characters, um, you know, in, in these, the style of beers yep. has led to, um, you know, a, a bit more fragility in the beers themselves. And, you know, I've noticed, especially the summer with uh, very hot temperatures through the summer, that uh, more beer was arriving to us in, in a pretty rough condition. Because when you ground ship uh, something and it's sitting out on a UPS truck for, you know, three or four days crossing the country in 90 degree weather, like, it's going to get pretty warm out yeah, there. Yeah, although it's probably not getting 90 degrees in the UPS truck or yeah. in the warehouse um, because uh, then, you know, the chocolate bar that somebody is sending to a friend <laughs> via the same system or whatnot, you know, things will end up ruined right, right. and UPS is going to hear from it. So I'm sure that they stored a little bit better. But even still, what that's suggesting is maybe that it's even worse for those beers right. because what they're being subjected to is not so terribly extreme. Right. But they're not even able to withstand some modest you know, rises in temperature of, say, room temperature or room temperature plus. Right. Well, you know, a lot of wine shippers, and, and you know, I will order wine online from time to time. They they do temperature holds and won't ship, you know, during these kinds of, you know, hot uh, you know, temperatures. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've still got an outstanding order for, uh, you know, some wine that uh, hasn't shipped yet because they're, you know, they're just worried about shipping it. Mm-hmm. But beer, you know, people tend to roll the dice a little bit more often on that. Um, you know, and nowadays you have folks that, uh, you know, buy beer at a brewery, drive it home, sits in the trunk, you know, may get shipped out in some, you know, interesting or questionable, um, you know, conditions that the, you know, that's all natural. And we can expect that to be a part of the beer world that we're in today. Um, it has to be weird and interesting to see people review beer though, and uh, rate beer based on those kinds of experiences when there's a kind of questionable, you know, custody to that beer sure uh, that is true but i think you know f- for us at stone it goes back to one of the things i've been the proudest of 
over the years is that we have always ranked very well on the online ratings websites um, historically, and that's all real-world experiences that are sometimes fraught with challenges along the way, um, whether it's the wholesaler, a little less likely these days, the retailer, sometimes that is the case, and the consumer. Hey, sometimes people don't know how to treat the beer themselves, and they leave it in the garage instead of you know, at least bring it in the house. Um, so, you know, that's, if you can, if your beer can withstand less than perfect conditions and still come out tasting great, you know, that's the holy grail, of course. For sure. You know, it's an interesting one. And, and since we're in Richmond, I can talk about it. You know, Richmond, strangely enough, I think has been at this kind of forefront of a non-shelf stable you know, beer movement um, and folks like the Answer and the Veil have uh, come out with these heavily fruited, unrefermented, uh, you know, still plenty of fermentable sugar kind of, you know, beers with uh, heavy fruit. And I'm not going to ask you to, you know, opine on that, but it is an interesting well, one that, uh, you know, that these, uh, you know, that, that this is a town now that has been known for very sweet, but also, um, you know, breweries that are specifically telling you know, their consumers, that this must be refrigerated, that, uh, you know, this will, will not last. Um, I think it's actually kind of cool. Now, yeah. you're, you're right. It, you know, these things can be fraught with some problems along the way, but these breweries and, and those two that you mentioned specifically, I have a, a great deal of respect and admiration for. I love their beers, and I, I you know, hey, it's adding to the conversation about, about what beer can and should be, is able to be, and, uh, you know, how to treat it and all of that. Uh, you know, and it's nice to be balanced in the craft brewing industry with some of these. You know, well, like the world is made up of uh, everything is a is a, um, a bell curve, and there's always going to be one extreme end and the other extreme end, and one extreme end is you know perhaps see some uber fresh. Um, we we certainly forwarded that with the Stone and Joy by IPA sure concept. Sure. Uh, now, I think four years ago. Um, so, yeah, I think it's cool. I don't disagree with you there. I, uh, you know, it may, even if it's not my personal preference for beer to drink, I think right. what, what you say there and, and the, that it expands the idea of what beer can be as long as you're educating the consumer to go along with that. Yeah, you, you know, can, I'm, I'm asked frequently, hey, what do you think about these hazy IPAs? And they're expecting a negative reaction from yeah. me. For some reason, I don't know, I got some reputation. <laughs> and uh, the truth is, um, I think some of them are absolutely awesome. Yeah. I have no problem with a beer being hazy. Uh, no, you guys even make some of them, yeah, we've too. Made, we've made yeah. some hazy yeah. beers um, going all the way back to the Stone 020202 Vertical Epic Ale. Yeah. Uh, it was originally uh, hazy, quite hazy. So, um, I think if brewers find a way to connect flavors to people that enjoy them, and can do that in a way that's you know honest and transparent and and fair about what it is, and then also you know be communicative and, and open about the way that they have to store and, and uh, enjoy those, and everybody's on the same you know board, then I, I don't see a problem with that. You yeah. know, I mean we you know our milk milk will go bad if I leave it out, and uh, and yeah, we don't seem to you know be upset at milk producers that that they don't make a shelf stable product just because beer has been entirely shelf stable because. The folks defining what beer has been for the last hundred years have large-scale, you know, production processes that allow them to do that. Doesn't mean that that's the only thing. Sure. That it can. Well, be. On, on the other side, of course, there's you know whether it, it might be a, a Brett beer or some sour styles uh, are extremely shelf stable for a true you know as a result of a true artisanal approach to right. beer, right. not just an industrialized approach. But yeah, hey, there's lots of fun stuff going on out there for sure. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you know some of your your recent um, uh, uh, I, I don't want to call them antics, but you have a <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think you just did. Um, now I feel like I have something to live up to here. You all have have filed suit against Big Beer. Oh, that was uh, definitely not an antic. No. <laughs> I can tell you that was not an antic. That is definitely an anti-antic. Now I might have had a little fun. I, there might have been a little bit of social I media video antics. Sure, sure. right. Um, but but uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, you guys have have taken aim at, at Keystone over the their use of stone. Well, they took aim first. Okay, and that's the issue. Just you know, 
full stop. I mean, they started this. We had no choice but to uh, get in there and say, hey, we've noticed this. In fact, we couldn't not see this happening, and we can't let it happen. We can't let you just do this because that's our trademark that you're, you know. Here's what they did. That's how I would describe it. For for years, they kind of were starting to, you know, the back corner of our property, they were kind of cutting a little bit of a path. Like, you know, kid cutting a path going to school. And you're like, okay, you know, you want to say get off of my lawn, but yeah. Okay. And then eventually, you know, one day, you know, when they did this rebranding last year, um, it wasn't a path being cut back, you know, across the back corner. There were tents set up and there was building going on and like no no this is our property we can't put up with that you can't do that and so we're gonna have to go through the legal moves to stop you and have you clear all this stuff out and correct the situation and so that's where we're at right now do you really honestly think that people are going to confuse your brand with uh, an american light lager that's uh, you know pitched at that discount uh, that side of things or uh, i can tell you factually or is this a you know a way to get out there and 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 you know push a press cycle oh no it's absolutely not the the, the latter okay absolutely no because look I, I hey i have engaged in semantics over the years <laughs> you know from time to time to have fun and, i've watched you know, the videos of you driving a, a forklift or a you know, bucket loader and smashing beer bottles you know you've, you've done your share of uh, photo ready press ops but yeah. yeah well that was one thing <laughs> over 22 years let's be cautious on how much you know attention we give. but um in in this particular case uh, trademark law requires right, right. a protect it or lose it, period. Yeah. So if you, your territory is encroached upon, you have to defend it. Uh, there is no choice. Or you just give up your rights. And right. uh, our trademark is valuable to us. It's, sure. It's sure. Our, in the world of beer, the name Stone is ours. Right. Period. So, um, yes, uh, in have people can can people get confused? Yes, studies have shown they absolutely get confused, and it's we, we got to remember we're insiders here. Sure, are you going to get confused? Am I going to get confused? N- maybe less likely. Right, but there are lots of people out there that are just normal beer drinkers, and they hear the names and they think oh stone that's a name that's respected hey this has the word stone on it this must be that thing that my friends or my colleagues in i mean i could quiz you about any other product or service that you might sort of fringe know about yeah and you find you know cases where we'd be confused it's like uh you know somebody was eating a um you know, one of those uh, healthy bars or whatever for you, you know, the other day. And I was really hungry. And he says, oh, I've got an extra one. Do you want one? And I looked at the brand name and I said, well, actually, no thanks, because I avoid anything with the word healthy or natural <laughs> in the name yeah. on the label. Huh. Because I've learned that, yeah, if they have the word healthy or, or natural, there's anything but. Right, right. Right. So as a consumer, you have to be... I think you have to be too skeptical. Yeah. I wish I didn't have to be as skeptical as sure. I am, as, as I've learned to be as a consumer. Um, and, you know, not everybody is. There's a lot of very non-skeptical people out there, as our <clears throat> current political climate will tell you, <laughs> that, that, who are willing to believe what yeah, they're being told. Yeah, it's a, it's a good brand point. And, uh, you know, we uh, part of what we do is we, we um, run a brewery workshop, Accelerators for Breweries and Planning, those that want to launch breweries. And I tell this, you know, to folks over and over again. When uh, when I look at data from consumers that that we get, or even our own readers, people that are willing to read and subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine and are fairly engaged with with craft beer, um, I can't tell you how many, you know, in our recent best of you know, best of beer poll survey uh, of our consumers, how many answers we got that were things like, "What's your favorite beer?" Well, it was Founders Too Hearted. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, right. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there is no beer founders too hard. It's Bell's right. too hearted or, you know, founders all day IPA. Like, you know, and yet, you know, this is an engaged, you know, consumer base that can make, you know, nuanced decisions about other things. And they are still, you know, um, making some pretty 
basic, you know, kind of confusing things. Oh, and so I have people from a, from a business perspective. You know, like, you know, we think people understand our brands in this specific way because we're close to those brands. Right. But the way that individuals relate to those brands is far different than we relate to them. I can't tell you how many uh, times I've run into a, um, a craft beer newbie, uh, and they'll say, "Oh, do you know this beer called Pliny?" And like. One, do I know it? Yeah, I've, I'm familiar with it. I've known Vinny and Natalie since 1995, I think. Um, but, you know, uh, or um, because they've heard of it, right? And, and I remember a friend of mine, Craft Beer Bar in downtown San Diego, when Sam Calagione's show was on. Um, uh, and they did the, the Bitches Brew episode. Yeah. And so he said to me uh, shortly after that aired, he says, I am tired of people coming in to my craft beer bar and saying, do you have any of the bitches brew? People that he would never see yeah. at other times. And it's because they heard it. It's a buzzword. So that's how people can become confused. When they hear just a tiny little bit of information, they don't really understand much about it. I mean, hey, I'm glad they're asking questions and seeking out. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. But you can see how easily they'll take a tiny bit of information and expand it into you know, a different scenario, like that you might just run into a craft beer bar in downtown San Diego and get some of this bitches brew that they'd heard about on TV. Right, right. Let's walk back a little bit. I have one, you know, you talked about launching the business, launching Stone at a time when the craft, that first craft beer bubble was bursting. Um, since this most recent, uh, you know, rise in craft beer, you know, got kickstarted in the the early twenty teens, uh, people have been predicting its demise, and they predicted its demise when there were fifteen hundred breweries in the country, and then when there were twenty five hundred breweries, and now we're closing in on seven thousand breweries in the country right now, and we still haven't seen, you know, this imminent demise that's coming. Um, but there, I think there is still some feeling that something will probably shake out in, in the next decade because all things are cyclical, all business, you know, uh, experiences kind of ebbs and flows. Um, what what were some of the lessons you learned from that first difficult time as craft beer, you know, kind of went through these struggles? Um, and how were you able then, you know, to apply some of those lessons to how you prepare for what it might be some cyclical downturn, you know, in the future looking forward. Yeah, so I can, uh, you know, I think about this. It makes me think of uh, eucalyptus trees in San Diego. And um, when we have a couple of years in a row of a decent amount of rain, now, of course, our decent amount of rains isn't anybody else's pretty dry but right. you know decent amount of rain and um not having the high winds we have winds that will blow in sometimes really strong yeah called the santa Anas. right and from year to year they can be quite different and they can be vicious on some years so you have a couple of years worth of tree growth of these young eucalyptus coming up and are really healthy and just shooting to the sky and there's not much wind they haven't grown a necessary component to their structural character that allows them to withstand the wind. The wind kicks up, and there are trees down all over the place. Because in order to be healthy, strong structurally, you have to have some headwinds. You have to. And so, you know, as we have seen some small brewers growing up over recent years with functionally no headwinds, I mean, they open up and they've got a line outside the door. They, you know, are getting bloggers and they're getting newspapers, the local papers. I mean, the local paper never wrote about us, you know, back yeah. in those days. Right. The media, the media ignored it. So right now there's like disproportionate amount of attention. I love that. That's great. But be careful, guys, because if you don't have lean business practices, if you haven't been forced to be strong against some headwinds, could be when the winds kick up, there's going to be some toppling, some branches broken at the least, and maybe the, you know, the, the tree ball, the root ball comes out. What are, what are some of those lean practices? I mean, what, what are lessons you may have learned the hard way through this? Well, um, we actually grew up in a lean time. Yeah. So 
you know, you can almost relate it to if you've ever known anybody that grew up during the Depression. Right, right. They just, it becomes part of their DNA. It yeah. just becomes normal part. They just. We've had a grandmother that, you know, yeah. stashed toilet paper under the the, kit, uh, the bathroom sink because she wasn't sure she's going to still have enough when she needed it. They're right. Sure. And sure. You, you want enough toilet paper when you need <laughs> you it. You do need it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's that kind of mentality. Yeah. So it's not one specific thing of just make sure you do X, Y, or Z. It's across the spectrum and including with your consumers. I mean, like, how are you connecting with your fans? And what is the makeup? Is it just random people that have heard your beer's cool and they're supposed to come in on a Wednesday for a special release or something like that? Or is it true people who really understand what you're about and care about that thing? Because when the wind kicks up, those people that heard they're supposed to come in and get this you know, cloudy beer or whatever it is, they might not roll in the following week. You know, the following week will be less and then it'll be less and you'll be like, what happened? Well, tides shifted a little bit. And it's just like the people that were coming into my friend's craft beer bar in San Diego asking for Bitches Brew. They, you know, when, when that's not a thing anymore at the moment, they're not coming in the next week asking, asking for something else. They're just not coming in. Now, even at your scale, and even recently, you all maybe experienced some effect of that. You know, well, at, we are experiencing. At, yeah, absolutely. You, you hit a plateau, and you know, you stopped growing for a little bit, um, and there was a little bit of a stutter for you all. And um, you have somehow, over the last year and a half, eighteen months, managed to get past that and can and actually grow volume again. Well, we've um, been we've we've grown every year. Okay. Yeah, we have grown every year. We haven't had a down year, and to, and this year will not be a down year for us, and next year will not be a down year for us. But it has. Um, there are decreased. peers. There are peers, you know, also at your scale that are you having know, down years, having down years or, or plateau years, and not growing in a significant way or growing in a single digits when they've been growing in double digits. Right. Um, it's not an uncommon story to hear out there that, um, you know, the, those tailwinds that were pushing everybody forward are, uh, you know, maybe shifting a little bit and getting or, or getting more dispersed across, uh, you know, a bigger, you know, breadth of that. How, you know, f- your brands and, and, you know, craft beer, a lot of it is, again, built on that kind of inquisitive wanting to explore um, and try new things. Um, the bigger a brand gets, the larger the challenge gets to make that uh, something new and different and exciting for a consumer. How, as this business has gotten to the size and the scale that it is, do you continue to, to make that story interesting for consumers um, and, uh, and keep attracting new ones to your brand? By keeping it interesting for ourselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, remember he used those four words, beer geek gone pro? That's uh, got to apply today. You know, if I lose my beer geek or we lose at Stone our collective beer geekdom, uh, then I can anticipate if we're not as excited anymore, how can we expect anybody else to be, uh, you know, as excited as they were? Yeah. So we do things uh, that excite us. We constantly push forward. And um, like the very beginning, we've always taken inspiration from the world around us. We try not to copy. And, you know, you look at Stone and say we have a big reputation for being copycats. But being inspired by and motivated by and, uh, you know, just being creative. Um, And that applies not only in uh, the beers we brew, but the other things that we do. Uh, for example, being the first American craft brewer to build own and operate our own brewery in Europe, being the first American independent craft brewer to build our own place in China. Um, it, you know, we, we've, we've, I look at this as a creative endeavor. We are an artisan company, and the benefits of being artisan are that you get to behave like an artisan you know you always have to have the business down too right no matter who you are if you're just a solo painter or sculptor or something you still have to have some business acumen to be able to get out there promote yourself get some showings hopefully sell some pieces of art so you can buy yourself some top ramen or you know uh, pay for the warehouse space to in which to create your art um and we like to treat our not just our beer, 
but our restaurants and our endeavors as art. Like the, you can bring artistic aspects. Granted, uh, you know, is Stone Distributing or distrib- Distribution Company, is that an artistic endeavor? I can tell you. When you make sure, you know, n- not me making sure, but our own team, they drive themselves. All of our drivers have passed the Cicerone, you know, basic Cicerone. They're drivers. I don't think there's any other wholesaler out there that can say all their drivers have done that. You know, these are people that want to bring that artistic side, that knowledge, the passion to what they do on a day-to-day basis. And so we have that kind of mentality that then pervades throughout the entire company. I think that puts us at an advantage because uh, it's I, real. And I love the art metaphor, but the the you know if you look at any artist. The further they get, take you know, from the production of that art, you know, and, and as things get bigger for you, then you know, the further removed you get from that. Uh, or Andy Warhol, you know, when his assistants started making all of his paintings, or Mark Costabi, you know, who was a you know a modern artist who has an atelier of painters now painting his paintings for him, and he decides which ones he signs that become his art. Um, or Ch- Dale Chiluli, you know, the Seattle glass artist, um, you know, who uh, is now facing a lawsuit from one of his ateliers who uh, you know claims that authorship in his work was was taken. Um, the bigger it gets, sounds like you're pretty uh, knowledgeable in that world. Uh, yeah, you know, but the let's... bigger it gets, the harder it is to you know to make that imprint and well, and. Uh, how do you deal not with that take challenge? Two, I mean, so yeah. so we didn't claim to be painters, I, yeah, okay? Yeah. So you know, that's your metaphor. <laughs> uh, it's it's yeah. a well, no art is a metaphor, but sure. I think we have sure. to. So something like a painting is highly personal to the person right. who is holding the paintbrush. Versus, it doesn't have to be, but yes, that, it doesn't that, have that, to that be. would be a traditional. But definition. if you're if you're yeah. sort of having uh, your signature on some of those, I think it damn well should be. Sure. Sure. Otherwise, I think I'm, maybe I'll feel cheated. You know, I mean, again, Warhol had his philosophy, and, and just like uh, unrefermented juice type beers, I, you know, it creates a new op- <laughs> you know it creates a, a different idea of what art can be, and, and I don't think that that's wrong. I think it's just something that challenges a typical, you know, definition of that. But it does get harder, you know, as this gets. It bigger. doesn't have to. So at Stone, you know, look when we created, uh, you know, Steve created Stone IPA recipe. Yeah. Um, he was our, our main brewer at the time, and he did a lot of the brews, but not all of them. And as we then moved to Escondido and, and built our new brewery there, one thing we are all in agreement is, like, wow, Stone IPA just took a notch upwards. Like, it got better. And we, yeah. are, we are very happy with the shift. You know, you're concerned. You're going right, from a 30-barrel right. brew house to a 120-barrel. So then... Um, you know, it got better. And so we brew a batch of beer. Now can we brew another batch of beer? And now can we brew another batch of beer? And can you brew them to the same qualitative uh, level as before? Well, if you make the qualitative label level the defining factor that will say, uh, yes, we can do more or no, we cannot do more, um, that's how you can maintain it. But when, and I've seen companies do this, not just in the brewing world, but in other kinds of companies, where they say, okay, we um, have orders that are 120% of our ability to make our product in the standard that we like to do it. You either do only 100% of what you can do within those standards, or you change your standards to pump out that 120%. Yeah. And so it's not changing those standards. So then that just becomes, it's a artistic decision. It's a business decision. For me, it's just as much a business decision because I can see the downsides of changing to fulfill that 120% when you cannot hit your qualitative standards by doing so. And we can look at, I mean, it's a well-known story. And yes, it's an in, in, you know the industrialized side of beer, but with Stroh, you know the Stroh story? I'm not familiar with that. Well, so historically, and I, uh, you know, and I might get a little detail. I think there's a Harvard business case, and you know, whatnot. There's definitely been business cases right. and studies about this. But what happened was that they learned that um, if they modified the recipe ever so slightly, they through testing, the people could not tell the difference, but they could save some money. So they did it. And then, once again, if they re- modified the recipe ever so slightly, they could save some more money. People could not functionally tell the difference. 
And after a few years of doing this, guess what happened? They ended up with goalposts from the original recipe to where they were at now. Yeah. And everybody could tell the difference. Right, right. But even though there wasn't that direct comparison, it wasn't available because they were, you know, separated by a few years, consumers became less and less enamored. I, I don't know if people actually thought about it consciously. Like, yeah. this isn't as good as it used to be, sure, or sure. I don't find it as interesting as it used to be, or I just don't, you know, whatever. However they reacted. Right. But the bottom is, line is they reacted by buying less. And at that point, yeah. the brand was dead. It was, they killed themselves. Yeah. You guys have done exactly the opposite of that, which I think is another interesting point. And um, you, over the last two years, have actually reformulated some of your, your core brands, you know, like pale ale and IPA, to you know, make those recipes fit what consumers expect from that brand now. Um, that's a challenging move for it's a scary. of your size. I can tell you it was, it was very scary, but we felt it was the right thing to do because yeah. when we sat down and we did that side-by-side taste test, we agreed that the newer version, we liked it better. <laughs> and yeah. so if yeah. you can look across, you know, at ourselves within yourself or across at your colleague, across the table yeah. to your colleague and say, I don't know, I kind of think this tastes a little bit better. I really like it. Then you feel compelled to go ahead and make that change. Uh, and it's a scary, and I think probably most companies would not do it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can't speak for others. It's it's an interesting point. And I think, you know, there, there's a question that lies there for me. Um, is a beer what the consumer expects from the beer? Or is a beer the recipe for that beer? Because consumers change over time. Palates change. The inputs that we experience in our lives, you know, everything that we taste you know, does have a way of kind of shifting our palate. And so we can, and, and we see this all the time, you know, even among beer geeks rating things on the internet to bring that back around. Sure. They're like, batch one was better. Well, of course batch one was better because when you had batch one, you had different inputs in your palate. And so now when you try it again, you know, you're not tasting it in the same kind of context. Um, so as that context changes, you know, it does seem like you all have made that decision to, you know, just to adjust the the beer so that, that it hits people in the same kind of way that it hit people when they tried it in those and ourselves and, and you know yeah. and we're people too so we you know so we wanted yeah. to to hit us, ourselves that way um yeah it's the mentality of let's not ever feel we are so special that we can't be better that we are so awesome that we can't make something better in fact i feel very much the opposite way hell yes i want it can we make something better something that we you know, would feel be is, is golden, you know, and, and uh, you know, a sacred, a sacred cow. Well, can we make that sacred cow incrementally better in some way? Then let's do it. It's not that difficult. At, well, it can be because there's all, hey, three-dimensional world it's, that we live in. It's not in. that difficult if you're, you're releasing a beer in your tap room. It's a little bit diffi- more difficult when you're brewing, you know, tens or 100,000 barrels of that beer and, uh, yeah. you know, shipping it worldwide. And that's why we, you know, we communicated it. Yeah. We, we let people know. We said, hey, we're kind of excited about this change, but we want you to be aware there's a change. And it would be more typical in the beer industry and other industries to simply sneak the change in there. Sure. Which, hey, if you are benefiting the consumer, if you're sitting at your own tasting table saying, I think the new recipe or the modified recipe is incrementally or significantly better – then I think you're cheating no one because you're being, you know, the integrity behind right. it. But we decided to publicly kind of shout it out. Now, we didn't shout it out super, super loud for somebody who's, you know, right. because you, right. you want to, you, you know, walk carefully with that kind of thing. Was it successful from a consumer perspective? Did you see sales increase for those after the changes? Uh, yes, we had some success with it. We, we ended up feeling that it was the right change yeah. to make, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and it depends. Like, you know, Stone IPA was really, I mean, we called it 1.1. You know, we did Ruination with a 2.0. Yeah. So, because we felt it was enough of a change um, to, to warrant a 2.0 version versus the Stone IPA was really a fairly modest tweak. But we still felt it was our responsibility and just we wanted to let people know to share yeah. that information with them. Well, cheers. Greg Cook, 
executive chairman of Stone Brewer, Stone Brewing, co-founder of Stone Brewing. Um, thanks for sitting down Are with me. Are we done already? Boy, that went quick. That's, the conversation flies. That is an hour right now. <laughs> we have gone 60 minutes on tape right now. But thank you. Thank you for sitting down and talking with me here at the Stone Brewery in Richmond. It's a pleasure. Really appreciate your conversation. And, uh, you know, people can find you on the internet at all the places that Stone is. Um, how do they follow you personally? Jumping off of trucks, off of bar tops, <laughs> engaging in some kind of antics. Is it more fun on your personal uh, Instagram and social media? Or how, do, how do people follow you? Um, I am on Twitter, although currently on a hiatus. Okay. But I'm at okay. Stone Greg on okay. Twitter. And uh, other than that, I'll just you know, see you at the, at the pub, at the tasting room, at Stone Berlin, Stone Shanghai, Stone Napa, Stone San Diego. Cheers to that. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, subscribe. You can uh, find us online at beerandbrewing.com. You can find uh, Beer and Brewing Magazine on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Um, subscribe to the magazine. We'd love to uh, uh, you know, share stories, and you can see fantastic reviews of stone beers from time to time. Oh, we didn't pages. even talk about our new collaboration with Metallica. Oh, man, it is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Metallica. All right. Well, that, that'll be a subject for another podcast. Uh, cheers, Greg. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.